Welcome again to Door Creek. Thanks for joining us. Hey, wherever you're at, so glad that you're here together as we get into God's word. Before we jump into Amos, just a, a, a word to celebrate. So 150 kids at our Chicago Eagles soccer camp this week. Several of those kids growing in their faith, growing in their soccer skills. The thing we're super excited about are the kids and there's several of the children who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we're just we're just celebrating that, thanking God for that. And so thank you for your generous giving here, for serving, just making us a place that we can continue to extend the love and mercy of God to people all around, young and old, and here and there, north side to forest, all over the place. So in, at the north side, we had a great week of STEM. And the last couple of weeks, we've had some STEM projects going on through our nonprofit, The Door of Hope, where we're helping kids and their families flourish in all the ways that God intended. So excited about that and excited to jump in the word of God as well. So installment number three in our Watchdog series, the book of Amos. So just some words of introduction about Amos. So first of all, Amos, um, his name means to carry a burden. And it's fitting because he was the shepherd from Tekoa. Uh, so 15 miles kind of southeast of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, Judah. And he was also a farmer, of a fig tree farmer, right? And uh, so he carried burdens, whether it was the sheep or the fruit of his produce, you know, he would do that. But the burden that he really carries that goes on in this book is the burden of bringing this message that's a hard message, but a good message to God's people up in the north. That's not really his people, but it was God's people and it was his job that he had. So that's a little bit about Amos. Uh, a couple things, other things, is he is uh, a contemporary of Isaiah, of Hosea, of Jonah. And so he's serving God in the middle of the 8th century, so 750-ish BC. The king in the south is a guy named Uzziah. So that's the king in Isaiah's prophecy. And where he's going up in Israel, the king is a guy named Jeroboam II, who's uh, he's a bad guy. In fact, all the kings up north are bad guys. They keep the worship to these idols that were set up by his namesake, the first King Jeroboam, the first king up in the north, who set up these shrines and these idols in places like Bethel and Dan and Gilgal and Beersheba. And so God's sending this guy who's a farmer. He, he's not a prophet. He says, I'm not the son of a prophet. I don't have the education, so to speak. I don't have the pedigree. But uh, I know God and he knows me and he gave me this job to do to bring this message to God's people. So what we know about the people up north is they're really religious, but it was a busted up religion, right? They had lots of, they had lots of idols. They had lots of worship, lots of sacrifices. They had lots of festivals and songs and all of that was, was corrupt and it was dishonoring to God for two reasons. Their, their religion was disconnected to God and the true worship of God by going after all these other idols. So they had literally set up, the first Jeroboam set up these golden calves, like way back in the, you know, at Mount Sinai when Aaron threw some like gold in the fire and he said, I'll jump the calf. So they've got these idols disconnected from God and they were disconnected in their love for God's people. So they were oppressing and harassing the, the most vulnerable, their own flesh and blood. So religious, but also prosperous. 
This was like, this is in Israel's time. Wow, Jeroboam has brought victory over their perennial enemies. So the borders have expanded and they're living fat and happy. In fact, that's the very term he uses in chapter four, verse one to describe their wives. Your wives are like the cows of Bashan, like fat and happy, living in luxury in your luxurious mansions, yet you're oppressing the poor. And so religious prosperous and yet very unjust and there is widespread systematic injustice everywhere that always targeted the poor and the vulnerable so here's this message Israel listen up hear the word of the Lord you've been chosen out of all the families of the world out of all the nations you're my special people and I chose you to come into this relationship so that you could be a shining light to the nation and so that my blessing on you would be blessings that would be mediated and dispensed through you to all the families of the world but his message is this God is as offended and he's roaring and he hates your religion. And so you need to seek God and you need to seek and do good. And, and, and you're, gonna, you're gonna die otherwise. It's gonna go bad. You're gonna get carried off into exile. And, and so right now you just need to know whatever you're doing that you think is good and religious, it stinks to high heaven. I hate what you're doing. I hate your religion. I hate your worship. And all I gotta say is like, if I started the message and say, hey guys, man, it was a pretty powerful week and I feel like God really spoke to me and I have a message from God for you and, it go, and you're going, whoa, what, what, what? God hates your worship. He hates how you just sang that song. He hates your prayers. He hates every penny that you've put in the offering. He hates how you're serving here. He hates it all. You'd go, dude, what, what has gotten into that guy? This, this is the setting. So it, it's tense. So he, he's not from the north. He's a southerner. The, the people in the north haven't been responding to the messages of the prophets. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. So they want nothing to do with him. In fact, in chapter 7, the, 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 uh, the high priest Amaziah, who's there worshiping and controlling the false bogus worship at Bethel, he confronts Amos and he says, go home, go back to your people. Go get paid for what you're doing down there. We don't want to hear anything of it. So he starts his prophecy up in Israel and he starts lambasting the surrounding nations. And we can imagine the Israelites up north are going, yeah, God, you go get them. And he's listing out all these war crimes for the, for the nations of like of Syria and, and, and the Philistines and the Phoenicians and the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And he even points out what's wrong in Judah. They're brothers and sisters of the south who've rejected the word of God, who are serving these other idols. So they might be cheering that all on. And then like all bets are off when he turns the corner and says, all right, the roaring lion God has something to say to you. And then from chapter two, verse 6 all the way through chapter 4 he starts listing out the charges that God has against them and it's tough it's tough they 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 don't want to hear it in fact in chapter 4 
God says, listen, I, I've been trying to get your attention. Four times now, you have not returned to me as I have brought hard things in your life to get your attention. I brought famine. I brought locust plagues. I, I brought war and fire and devastation. But your heart's hard. And so the question here is, so how does God respond to people who are fat and happy, living in luxury, oppressing the poor, all the while rejecting God and seeking him and building up their own kind of religious structures and systems to appease, you know, their conscience or whatever it was. How does God respond to that? And when we turn to chapter 5, which is very much the hinge passage in this book, we see, to our surprise, that it's not in anger, which we would expect, even though he's bringing all these words of judgment. He responds by saying, yep, judgment is coming if you don't change. But he responds in deep sorrow. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. So his word is lament. It's a passionate expression of sorrow. It's what we would expect at a tragic funeral. It's like a funeral dirge here, he's saying. And what does he say? He's saying, Israel... It's over. You're dead. Listen to what he says. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. So God laments. He's sorrowful for where they're at, how, how they've chased after other gods when he's the God who made them and chose them for a relationship and delivered them from the slavery that they lived in. Uh, in Egypt those 400 years and they just chased after these golden calves that they made with their own hands. He's sorrowful for how they're not treating each other as they should as brothers and sisters created the image of God. He's sorrowful. but He's also merciful and the mercy comes through instruction and we see the instruction that says it's not too late even though I've pronounced that it's, it's over. You're dead. Israel has fallen, never to rise again. He's saying, it's not too late. Because as long as we draw breath, friends, our God is always extending mercy. Like the thief on the cross in the last minutes of his life, Jesus responded mercifully and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's never too late. So go to chapter five, verse four, and listen to the merciful instruction. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. These are all these phony temples, shrines that they set up. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. That's not your place of salvation. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Bethel's not going to save you. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It'll devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his, is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. Seek me and live, he says. Seek the Lord 
and live. All right, so how does God respond? With, with sorrow and with mercy. Merciful instruction. So we just ask a couple of questions here. Who are we to seek? Well, he said, seek me. Who's me? It's the Lord. So remember what we're saying about the prophets. They're sent from God. They have a message from God for the people of God. And at the heart of the message is always a message to the people to remind the people who God is. Who is this God who says, seek me, this one who is the Lord? Well, he's a lion who roars. It's terrifying. Like you, you've been wakened, right, in the middle of the night and you hear the neighbor cats, they got into it. Or maybe like us, you know, we're, we're kind of on the edge of the country, right? And you can hear the coyotes howling. Well, that's all well and good. And the howling coyotes can kind of be a little weird sometimes. But a roaring lion, that's terrifying. He's a terrifying God who is the king of all kings. He is sovereign 21 times. He identifies himself as the sovereign Lord. He's in control of everything. He is the creator. He hung the constellations like Orion and Pleiades in its place. He's the one who scoops up the waters and disperses it through the clouds over the fields of the earth. That's the Lord, the merciful God, the one who delivers and restores the Lord Almighty who knows your offenses and sins. You seek him. Don't you go seeking some, some gold, golden calf fashioned by your own hands. Seek me. What does it look like to seek God? Well, first of all, it's an imperative. It's a command to seek God. And the idea here has a sense of urgency. Beat a path. Don't let anything get in your way. This is like the house is on fire. Now, most of us haven't experienced that, but we can imagine it. Or what we have experienced is we were cooking at the stove and, you know, the dish towel was a little too close to the flame. And the next thing you know, the, the, there's a little fire breaking out. And I know if you're like me, what happens is, man, do we move fast. Move fast. Don't let anything get in your way. There's a sense of urgency. Make a beeline, beat a path to God. So first, don't seek me in those false religions you created at Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. There's no salvation in those places. It's never been about a place. Jesus drives the point home when he says, I'm the temple. That's where you meet with God. It's with me, the living word. There's no salvation in your gods. Those things are all gonna be turned into rubble. Seek me is another way of God saying through the prophet, return to me. Come back. This is like the constant theme. God is sorrowful that we turned away. He's sorrowful that we've, we're dealing with all this misery in our life and we're causing misery in other people's lives. And he's calling us back. Come back, come back. Seek me, seek me. Seek God, not religion. He hates religion. Look down at verse 21. Listen to what he says. This is like wild. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. It stinks. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. So, what God thinks of our, of our worship is the priority question, not what did I think of the worship today? And that's, you guys, I do the same thing. 
We kind of, we analyze what happened. We go, I like this, I didn't like that. That was kind of too long. That was, a, you know, that outfit. No, what God thinks of our worship is imperative. And my worship isn't just about singing and praying and giving. It's about doing good. That, that's where he goes next. That's where he goes next. But before we go there, let me just pause and just reflect on that. So Amos is asking us to wrestle and noodle with this question. What does God think of my worship? That's our first value, a life of worship, worshiping God in all of life. What does God think about my worship? Not what do I think about worship or about my worship? What does God think? And, and then like some specific things. Do, have I created some gods? Do, do I have some symbols that I turn to for identity, for security, for happiness? Are there some places like Bethel and Gilgal that I go to? Seek me, not religion. Second, he says, seek good and not evil. Verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Same tagline, same promise. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. He's actually not, because you're not seeking me. And you're not seeking good. You're actually doing evil. So what he's saying here is actually seeking God and doing good are inseparable. You cannot be seeking God and not doing good. You can't be seeking God and turning a blind eye to evil, thinking it's not a big deal, downplaying it, calling it by something else. Do, do, do we understand that? If we're seeking God, we need to do good. And if we're doing good... It means that we should be seeking God too because it's not enough. Both come into play here. Seek good, not evil. They're inseparable because this is the, the truth of the great commandments. In, in all the commandments, 613 of them are subsumed in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what doing good is about. Doing good to your neighbor maintaining, upholding justice. He's going to talk about that. And it leads to life. They're inseparable. And man, they have not been doing good. Here, here's just some little items that he points out. Chapter 2, verse 6. The people of Israel, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So is this human trafficking? Is this taking the poor and, and making them slaves because of their, you know, their debt slaves here? They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. So their sexuality is perverse. Their, the judicial system is all messed up and they're abusing and taking advantage of the most vulnerable. Chapter five, verse 11. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain as if they've got enough to feed their families now. You want more. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. The people whose back built your mansions and extended and cultivated those beautiful uh, vineyards, you're trashing them. 
You're taxing them. You're trying to just squeeze any and every nickel out of them that you can. I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent, take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Economic, judicial, systematic, personal injustice everywhere, everywhere. He says, you got to hate it. You got to hate it. And I wonder if that's... I wonder if that's in our category. And the reason I say that is verse 15. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of of Joseph. So seek good, not evil. But it's not just seeking good, it's hating evil. And that kind of feels like, we're not supposed to hate. We're like, you know... We're, we're Christians. We're not supposed to hate anything anyway. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're to hate evil. We're to hate evil. And if we don't hate evil, we are not going to be positioned to do good. He doesn't say no good. He says do good. And if you don't know what evil is, you're not going to be able to do good. And part of what doing good is, is undoing that which is busted and wrong. It's about justice. It's about righteousness. And that's where he goes when he says, all right, this is what, I, this is what I'm, this is the path. You're flatline dead right now. <laughs> the, the enemy's at the gate. And by the way, some 40 years after Amos's prophecy, the Assyrians came down to Sennacherib and they led him off into captivity in 721 BC. But he's saying it's not too late. You gotta seek me to live. You gotta do good. You gotta hate evil. And part of doing good and hating evil is maintaining justice and righteousness, 524. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. What an image. You gotta keep doing what is right. You gotta keep undoing what is wrong. Justice. These are the actions which correct injustice, treating people fairly. Righteousness is about doing that which is right, treating people fairly, understanding that they're made in the image of God. Let it roll like a river. So you you know who used this very passage, 524, in a speech that we go back to and go back to and go back to, say one of the greatest speeches of all time. August 28, 1963. Some 58 years ago this summer. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I read a portion said this. We cannot walk alone as we walk. We must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. This is the the image of this mighty rolling river. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels and the highways and the hotels of the cities. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger ghetto. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs that read, for whites only. We cannot be satisfied so long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote. 
And the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no. We are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. This man who was pursuing justice and righteousness, he did so from a basic understanding of the scriptures that we are all equally created in the image of God. Calling on the prophet Amos as he sounded forth this clarion call to the nation in his day, a call that is so apropos in our day. And the prophet Isaiah says, when we pursue righteousness and justice, well, it'll, it'll go well with God's people. Let me read you a portion from Isaiah. Remember what I said at the beginning, that Isaiah was a contemporary of Amos. He's writing to the people of God in the southern kingdom, and they're dealing with the same problems as the people up north. There's idolatry and they're trashing the most vulnerable. So we read this in chapter 58, reading at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Notice, it's not to call it out, to point it out, to name it. It's to make it right. That's at the heart of justice, to make that which is not right, right. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. What a witness it'll be, right? And your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your fame. You will be like a well-watered garden. Wow, what a beautiful picture. How clear it is of what we're called to do as we seek the Lord and do good, not evil, and hate evil that we would let justice roll like a mighty river and righteousness right in its heels. God help us as we learn the lessons of Amos, that how we treat each other, especially the poor and the vulnerable, is at the heart of living a godly life. We cannot separate doing justice and loving mercy from being his devoted follower. Social, societal justice is interwoven in our love for God and living a godly life. Listen to the message of Amos that warns those of us, and it's the most of us, who are wealthy, who live in beautiful homes, that this is a perilous place. 
Don't be deceived like the Israelites who could mistake the prosperity for God's blessing when they were in the crosshairs of his judgment. Prosperity is a liability. It's a great danger. Paul would say some have shipwrecked their faith because of the love of money. And so hold it loosely. Keep, keep wrestling in this area of being generous with all that God has entrusted to us. Keep giving food as we fill the van and feed the hungry in our own place. Keep caring about the issues of justice that are all around us. And the only reason we don't know about it is because we don't know these people. Keep building relationships with these people. Oh, embrace the lesson of Amos that reminds us that it's not just about loving God. We cannot love God and mistreat our neighbor. We cannot be indifferent to their sufferings. And so we need to have a holistic approach to what it means to live the Christian life. This is a word of protection. It protects us from doing good without seeking God. And that is secularism. And it protects us on the other side from seeking God without doing good. And that is this kind of religion perspective. What a good word from God's word. Let's pray. So Father, we remember Jesus right now who lived this all perfectly. And he's our hope as we understand our own shortcomings here. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us for how we think about the poor, how we've treated the poor, how we have treated the abundance that you've brought into our life and and we've hoarded it when you've asked us to manage it and steward it and to bless others. Lord, forgive us for chasing after these other gods. Lord Jesus, you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way. And you are the way to life. And so we would seek you with all of our hearts. The one, the one true God, the creator of all things, the sovereign king over all kings, the one who will one day judge all people that you were judged and took our sentence that we might call you our God. Have mercy on us, we pray. And may we be a people who continue to point to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.